0: Hello. I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute. Well, good evening, everybody, um, and thanks for inviting me here. I wanna thank NYU Abu Dhabi for asking me to speak tonight. Uh, about the nature of the law in the UAE. And I'd also like to thank all of you, the audience, for turning out to attend a lecture on what seems to be probably an arcane legal topic. Is the United Arab Emirates a civil law jurisdiction? Whatever that means. And we'll talk a little bit later about what that might mean. Um, I have to uh, thank a friend of mine, an Emirati attorney, Uh, for inspiring me to think about this question. He posed it a couple of years ago um, as I was delivering a lecture in a different university setting. It was over at Paris Sorbonne, uh, and I was talking about an even more arcane topic, the impact of the French law doctrine of imprevision on long-term contracts in the United Arab Emirates. If that is not guaranteed to put you to sleep, I don't know what will. Um, But um, it's early evening, not late evening. And hopefully, um, we'll keep you awake through this uh, in time to reach the coffee at the reception afterwards. Um, Anyway, during that uh, panel discussion, this gentleman asked why lawyers and scholars seem to think and assume that the UAE is a civil law jurisdiction and I thought that was a very thought-provoking question and I've been thinking about it for a while. So before we can really analyze that question and, and, and try to answer what the UAE is, we have to first ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a civil law jurisdiction? So we have to start by defining what we're talking about. What we're really talking about is where to put the UAE sort of in the spectrum of legal systems in the world. Do we, how do we classify it? Is the UAE a purely Sharia-based system? Is it a legal system that has more in common with legal systems like France? Or legal systems like England? Or is it something else, some sort of a complex hybrid? And in order to do that, in order to analyze that question, we really need to define some of the terms we're talking about. So first, what do we mean when we're talking about a legal system? A legal system is more than just a law or a group of laws. A legal system is both a structure and a methodology for doing lots of different things, including, for example, deciding which conduct is permissible and prohibited, informing people about what the law is, and resolving disputes. So in trying to do all these things, different legal systems may approach it in different ways. So when we're looking at a legal system, we want to ask, um, are we starting from a general legal principle and then using it to deduce specific rules and outcomes? Or are we going to take individual decisions on specific cases between people? and use inductive reasoning to extrapolate general principles of law from there. So in other words, are we working from the top down or are we working from the bottom up? And in either approach, how do we let people know what the law is? Do we, um, how do we ensure that people know what's prohibited and permitted? Do we gather everything into a book or in a database and everybody can access? Or do we have a system where you need specialized training and learned scholars to sort of ascertain what the law is and be sort of the intermediaries that tell people what is prohibited and what what is permitted. So um, these are different approaches that different legal systems can use. When we're talking about resolving disputes, different legal systems approach it differently. Are we placing more emphasis on consistency and uniformity so that we want every case that has similar facts and similar legal issues to have a similar outcome? Or do we want to give judges the flexibility to use reasoning to decide things on a case-by-case basis so they can emphasize uh, concepts like justice and fairness as they see it to uh, reach an outcome that's desirable to them in that case? Or a third option, do we want to emphasize taking the rules, whatever they may be, and faithfully and accurately applying them, even if that sometimes leads to outcomes that are inconsistent in specific cases or outcomes that may, in some cases, seem to be unfair and unjust. And all three of those have advantages and disadvantages. It's not like one is the right way to do it and the others are the wrong way to do it. And different systems have different methodologies methodologies to, um, to get at that. So having defined what a legal system is about, what are some of the different legal systems that exist around the world? A lot of lawyers talk about it as if there's only two, as if there's a dichotomy between civil law systems and common law systems. And in a moment or two, I'll try and define what we mean by civil law and common law. But there's lots of other legal systems in the world. There's Islamic law, the Sharia. There's canon law, which is the legal system of the Roman Catholic Church. There's Roman Dutch law, um, and so on and so forth. And all of these legal systems overlap in some ways, both in terms of their historical roots, their methodologies, and their objectives. And because of that overlap, it's not always very useful or helpful to draw sharp distinctions between them. But people love to classify things. They love to put things in little boxes and draw distinctions. And that's why we get to give (coughs) academic lectures about what category something goes into. Um, So we often hear, so we're going to try to do that here. And we often hear that the UAE is a civil law country. So we'll try to analyze whether that whether we agree with that and, and, you know, what the trends might be uh, in the UAE in the coming years. Well, so that means I have to talk about what the civil law tradition is. And to do that, I also need to talk about what the civil law tradition isn't. And that means we have to talk a little bit about common law and about Islamic law. And then we can look at the UAE and maybe gain some insight and in where it goes, which category it goes into, and again, as I said, what the coming trends might be. Well, no speech in 2017, no presentation is ever complete without slides, and this is no exception. And my first slide lists some different legal systems in the world, and I got to use little flag emoji icons to graphically illustrate um, some, but not all, of the countries associated with um, a particular legal system. So you can see that for the civil law tradition here, I have little flags of um, France and Spain and Germany and Japan and Mexico and Egypt and Lebanon. That list is. Um, both incomplete and oversimplified. It's incomplete, obviously, because I don't have space on the slide to put a flag for every single civil law country in the world. Um, and it's oversimplified because, after all, all of these legal systems in each country are different. And Germany's legal system has different historical roots than France's legal system, for example. But we're not here to have a history lesson so much as to talk about the UAE, and I am hoping to get to the UAE. UAE before midnight. So um, we're not going to talk about every country in the world. Um, The slide also has flag icons from several common law countries. We've got the UK, the United States, Canada, India, Pakistan, and Singapore. Um, Again, that is obviously an incomplete list, but it's also inaccurate. Technically speaking, the flag icon should not be the UK. It should be a separate flag for England and Wales and a different flag somewhere else on the slide for Scotland. But my uh, Mac OS doesn't have an England flag, a Wales flag, and a Scotland flag, so um, I couldn't do it that way. You also see, as I said, US, Canada, India, Pakistan, and Singapore. Um, For the Sharia category, I put a Saudi flag icon. For Roman Dutch, um, just because I like to brag that I've heard of Roman Dutch law and I know a little bit about what it is, I put South Africa, Sri Lanka, and Guyana, which are three countries that follow the Roman Dutch tradition. For canon law, I've got a Vatican flag. This is also inaccurate because canon law is the law of the church, not the Vatican city state. But hey, how often do you get to display a Vatican flag anywhere? So I took the opportunity to do that. Um, And for the hybrid civil law, common law category, I put a flag of the Philippines for reasons that I will explain later. Okay, civil law is a shorthand term that describes law which is based on codes and statutes or more generally a legal system that is based on codified law that is gathered together somewhere in a book or collection of books or maybe nowadays in an online database. Um, Civil law is generally understood to mean a top-down system where you have legal rules enacted by a sovereign which are expressed through provisions or articles of statutory law and compiled into reference books. Um, For example, a civil code, a commercial code, a company's law, something like that. For our purposes tonight, when we're distinguishing civil law systems from other systems, it doesn't really matter who that sovereign is. It doesn't matter whether the laws and codes are enacted by Parliament somewhere, a council of uh, deputies, or whether they're enacted, promulgated by a king or an emperor, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that one or more human beings enacted those laws and then gathered them together into a reference book. And I think uh, Napoleon, who is credited with Really commissioning the French Civil Code and then spreading that all over the world. His idea was we want the law to be accessible to the people so that anybody who can read can open up the French Civil Code and know what the law is. We don't need to go through the intermediary of specially trained learned men to tell people what the law is. We can go. Um, uh, directly to the book. And I think that idea is very much in keeping with other trends that were happening in Napoleon's time as as you had the idea that even in Christianity you had more of a move away from priests and directly interacting with the Bible. So that is one of the things that you see in a civil law system. So the role of the human beings in enacting the law is one of the important things that will distinguish a civil law system from say, canon law or Sharia, where the principles of law are coming from God. They're coming from human beings in a civil law system, but it is a top-down system. And we see that contrast in um, the next slide where you have in the Sharia system, the principles of law are coming from God, and then you have the revelation in the Quran, some legal principles will be expressly stated there, but not all. So then you need legal scholars using the science of fiqh to ascertain legal rules from the acceptable sources of law. And that is both the Quran, the Sunnah, which is the um, sayings and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad. But Sharia-based system also has a role for custom and practice. And custom and practice of the people, especially in commercial law, in commercial cases. This is a very important aspect of Islamic law. And so therefore, Islamic law, unlike civil law, also has a ground up or bottom up component component, as the things people actually do in their commercial life forms custom and practice, and that then sort of moves in an upward direction and legal scholars can use their tools of fiqh to uh, derive legal rules out of that. So um, while Sharia is sort of the ultimate top-down system because you've got your rules coming from God, it does have a little bit of this um, ground-up component. Now, all of this is oversimplification. I'm not trained in Sharia law, so certainly if I've gotten anything wrong here, if I've made any error in my characterization, please feel free to correct me during the Q&A or afterwards um, uh, if you want to talk to me. Courts are important in a civil law system because they decide cases. They decide and resolve disputes between people. People always have disputes, whether in business, whether in personal life and other matters, there's always disputes. But court decisions in a civil law system are, in theory at least, not in and of themselves important to people who who aren't parties to the specific case, to non-litigants in that case. Because in the civil law system, there is no system of binding precedent. What do we mean by binding precedent? That's something that we'll get to in a minute or two. We'll talk about it when we move to the common law system. But um, in a civil law system, the court decision is relevant to the parties of that case, not so much to outsiders. What is the prime example of a civil law legal system? France. France is usually considered to be the exemplar of the civil law uh, methodology. France exported its legal system and ideas all over the world through colonization and through conquest. So we see civil law systems operating in one form or another in the countries that Napoleon conquered in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, with some really key examples being Spain, Italy, and Egypt, and in the territories that France and Spain colonized. So you have French-speaking Africa, Mexico, which was colonized by Spain, the Philippines, much of the Spanish-speaking world, the province of Quebec in Canada, and even the state of Louisiana in the United States. All of those areas got some variation or some form of the civil code originally commissioned by Napoleon and and, and exported uh, in that period of time. Egypt in turn then went and exported its legal system throughout the Arab world. So the Egyptian system, which is incorporating much of the French tradition, got exported to the United Arab Emirates and lots of other Arabic speaking countries. Doesn't that mean that the UAE is, by definition, a civil law country? Because UAE modeled its legal system on Egypt. Egypt, in turn, modeled it on France. Well, I think that's exactly what underlies the assumption among lots of people, and you see this especially among non-Emirati Arabic speaking lawyers in this country, that the UAE must be a civil law country because it's just like Egypt or just like Jordan or just like Lebanon, or just like wherever that expat Arab lawyer happened to come from. But things aren't that simple. The UAE system isn't just like Egypt, and it isn't just like Jordan or any of those countries. And when you say that it is, you overlook much of the beauty and complexity of the UAE system. This is a small country, and it's a young country, but it has a really complex Um, legal culture and it is dynamic and growing. And I'm going to turn now to what I think is one of the third influences on the UAE system which is common law. Common law countries have legal systems inspired by England. And what we see is just like France, most of the French and Spanish colonies adopted civil law. Most of the countries that were colonized by the United Kingdom, Um, became common law jurisdictions. So that gives us the United States, most of Canada, Australia, Ireland, India, Pakistan, most of English-speaking Africa. I say most because South Africa is a special case. They have Roman-Dutch law. A common law legal system in theory, again, is using inductive reasoning to take general principles of law out of decisions in specific cases. So courts decide a case, and that case from that case we extract a legal rule and we take a whole series of cases and hey presto we now have um, contract law or property law or tort law or whatever that um, a law might be. The common law system is based at least in theory largely on what we call case law, decisions by judges that are considered to serve as binding precedent. And the very term case law that we use illustrates the importance that court decisions play in the common law jurisprudence. So here where we looked at civil law being top down, sharia being largely top down, common law is bottom up. We start with people's specific cases. They bring them to court. The court resolves the dispute. We extract general principles from prior court decisions. And then those principles become the common law. Now, one of the problems with this system, of course, is it it means that you need to have a little bit of specialized training to know how to extract the principles out of the case law. Okay. So um, that means we need to talk about binding precedent. Well, precedent, what does it mean? It means a prior decision by a court in a case that involves similar facts or issues. It means that other courts are bound by this decision. This, we're not talking about the simple effect of the case binding the parties. When you go to court and the judge orders you pay 1,000 dirhams to uh, so-and-so, you're bound by that. You're obligated, right? But only you are obligated by that. In, in all court systems, we have this concept. It's called in Latin, race judicata, and in Arabic, hajiyat al-amr al muqta And this tells us that the parties themselves are obligated. Um, they can't reopen the case later. They're bound by it. Okay, but we're talking about something a little bit different, because in the common law system, your court decision can have an impact that's far beyond the original parties. There's two paths for binding effect. Top-down, supreme court decision will articulate a legal rule. It means lower courts, like a court of appeal or a district court, a court of first instance, has to follow the rule articulated by the higher court. So if the United States Supreme Court issues a ruling that states a principle of law, all the lower courts in the United States have to apply that principle in future cases that involve similar facts and circumstances. If you have a ruling issued at a lower level, let's say a court of appeal, everything under that court of appeals circuit has to follow that. But a court in a different circuit doesn't have to follow it. Court in the different circuit, we may say that ruling, they can look to it for persuasive authority, but it's not necessarily binding on them. Well, that's the top-down effect of binding precedent in a common law system. But there's also, in addition to that vertical path, there's a horizontal path, which is what we call the doctrine of stare decisis. And that means that if the court today issues a ruling on an issue of law, a future court is supposed to apply the same rule if they're faced with similar facts and issues. And the policy behind that is, gee, similar facts deserve similar outcomes. It's fair because it's consistent. So um, that's the principle. So here you see it's a horizontal path. A future court is going to be bound by what a prior court did. Now, there are obviously some exceptions to that, but that that is the general rule in, um, in the common law system. If you have to overturn that or break with precedent, usually you have to have a very, very compelling reason to do so. So that is one of the big differences. There's also some differences in courtroom practice that we see between civil law systems and common law systems. In the civil law, lawyers are gonna, and, and we see this in the Arabic language courts in the UAE, lawyers will file written submissions on behalf of their clients, but the judge handles the case. The judge is really in control of the full case. So for example, the judge has the power to frame the legal issues in the dispute. It doesn't really matter what the lawyers say is the legal issue, the judge can reframe it or recharacterize the legal issues. The judge is the one in a civil law trial, the judge is the one who questions the witnesses. The lawyers don't directly talk to the witness, the judge asks the questions. And if there's any specialized expertise that's needed, it's the judge who decides to appoint an expert. And it's the judge who tells that expert what his mandate is, what is the task that he's being given. In the common law system, in contrast, it's very different. You, the, the trial is driven by the adversary relationship between the parties and their lawyers. So in a common law court, the parties, through their lawyers, frame the issues. The party says what they're suing for. The party raises a defense or raises a claim, and if they don't raise something, the court normally won't consider the issue. If you didn't raise it, the court doesn't need to think about it. That's a major difference in the common law system. Also. The lawyers are the one who question the witnesses directly. And there's a whole art of direct examination and cross-examination and all of that. Um, It's very different in a civil law case. And then if specialized expertise is required, each party is free to present testimony from an expert witness he selects. And that's why I get lucky sometimes, because when the case in the US courts is about UAE law, sometimes they call me to give that expert witness testimony about what UAE law is, and I'm always very happy to do that. Um, Well, like many dichotomies, things are never that simple. Common law systems aren't purely ground up. Civil law systems aren't purely top down. And then you have hybrid systems in some places, like the Philippines, like the province of Quebec and Canada, and the territory of Puerto Rico in the United States. And in due course, I'm going to submit to you that the United Arab Emirates is one of those hybrid systems, and that the interesting question for the next few years is whether we're going to see that hybrid lead to more convergence more divergence, or some kind of synthesis, as UAE law really brings all of these elements together. So obviously, common law systems are purely ground up, derived entirely on case law, because in the United States, in the UK, in Canada, you have lots and lots of statutory law that gets enacted by Congress, or Parliament, or um, whichever the legislative body is. Um, The United States Code, for example, is tens of thousands of pages of federal laws classified by subject matter. The Code of Federal Regulations is, last time I checked, about 200,000 pages or more of regulations. Statutes and regulations play a huge role in the UK and in other common law countries as well. And what does a common law court do when faced with a issue that is contained in a statute or regulation, the common law court has to do exactly what its civil law counterpart has to do. It has to use deductive reasoning to take what that law says and apply uh, that law to the facts of the case. And binding precedent isn't always binding. Sometimes we see the Supreme Court of the United States go back and overturn or break with one of its key precedents. And sometimes that's very controversial. Um, other times it's very much applauded. So um, you know, we had back in the 1950s, the case Brown versus Board of Education, which was a major case in the civil rights movement that basically prohibited segregation of public schools. That case broke with an earlier precedent that was set some years early in Plessy versus Ferguson. And the Supreme Court said, well, look, Plessy versus Ferguson was just wrongly decided. It was just wrong. And um, we're not going to uphold it. So that's in the common law. It's not as pure as I made it out to be in the first few slides. At the same time, in civil law countries, like France and Egypt, the role of judicial precedent is sometimes underestimated. Um, a ruling by the highest court in one of those countries, the Mahkemet al the French Cour de Cassation, Dubai Mahkemet al that doesn't formally obligate a lower court judge to rule the same way in a future case involving similar facts and similar issues. But the practical reality is that judges are human beings they don't like their decisions to get reversed by the higher court. If your decision is reversed, it implies that you made a mistake in your legal reasoning or somewhere in your ruling. You made an error. And if you make too many, if you have lots of reversals, it means you made lots of errors, and lots of errors means maybe you're not gonna get promoted. So. Uh, a judge is gonna be careful about trying to limit his opportunity or likelihood of getting reversed. So he's gonna probably be studying the precedence of the Court of Cassation to try and ascertain trends. And if he sees a trend that the Court of Cassation is consistently ruling in a certain way, he's going to shape his ruling around that. He may not be formally obligated, but informally he views himself as sort of bound by what the higher courts are doing. Um, So you find even in Egypt, even in the UAE, in the Arabic language courts, and in other civil law jurisdictions, you see lawyers looking at what the high court is doing and using that in their submissions, and you see judges citing to those higher court decisions in their judgments. Then you have hybrid countries. And here's where I'm going to come to the Philippines and Puerto Rico. Um, Both of them were under colonial rule by Spain for something like 300 plus years. And during that period, both of them inherited codified civil law systems from Spain. But both territories got acquired by the United States after the Spanish-American War in 1898. And the U.S. administration introduced common law institutions into both places, including American style courts. Puerto Rico continues to be a US territory, albeit today without any power and electricity, but Puerto Rico is integrated into the American court and legal system. So a system of binding precedent and court practices from the common law tradition are there. They're overlaying an infrastructure that's based on sort of codified law that was inherited from Spain, but all the common law methodologies and institutions are there. In the Philippines, although the Philippines gained full independence in 1947, and it has a civil code, which by the way, if you look at it in structure and even in some of the wording, it's remarkably similar to its cousins in the Arab world. Philippine courts still use the system of binding precedent, and even sometimes still look to judgments of the U.S. Supreme Court as persuasive authority. So you see there it's kind of a hybrid jurisdiction, Quebec. Quebec was originally colonized by France, later acquired by the British. Quebec is also firmly rooted in the civil law tradition. Everything is done in French, but it's still an integral part of Canada. And so because of that overlap, there's a strong influence of some of the common law institutions and methodologies. Well, what about the UAE? Um, I, I think the UAE is a hybrid system that, because of its unique history and environment, combines elements from at least three legal systems in the world, Islamic law, civil law, and common law. So let's look a little bit at the history and environmental influences here, and then we're gonna turn to what I think is the more interesting question of where things are going. So first, Sharia. Islam is obviously a fundamental part of the religion and the religious and cultural heritage in the UAE. But beyond that, the constitution of the United Arab Emirates expressly states a role for Islamic law, and um, where is it? It's here, Article 7 of the UAE Constitution, which says that Sharia is a principal source for legislation or for legislating in the Federation, however you want to translate it. Um, You also have express references to Islamic law in the Civil Code, in the Penal Code, and lots and lots of other laws in the UAE. Um, and I think one of the interesting references is in the Civil Code itself. Article one, the first article of the Civil Code in the UAE, gives instructions to judges on how and when to apply sharia. And it basically tells judges, and here I've got it in Arabic and I've got it in English. Um, it it tells judges um, that they are supposed to. De- they are required to decide cases according to the provisions of the Civil Code when the Civil Code has a dispositive text, something that's on topic, something that's on point. They must use the Civil Code. If there isn't anything, if there's a gap in the Civil Code so that their question isn't answered by the positive law, the enacted law of the Civil Code, then they turn to Sharia. And then it gives them guidance on how to do that. Do you look at Maliki rules, Hanbali rules first, and then if nothing is there, then you look at Shafi'i and Hanafi after that. And if there's nothing that you find in Sharia sources, then you rule in accordance with custom. So there's this hierarchy of where to look, and so it's instructing the judge to look at the positive law, the enacted law text first, and if, it's, if there's a gap in it, then you turn to sharia. But, but article two tells you you, can, you are supposed to use the rules and principles of fiqh, of Islamic jurisprudence, in the understanding, construction, and interpretation of the Civil Code text. So, what does that mean? What what that means is we have a system of positive law enacted by human legislatures, but that system of positive law is vetted to ensure conformity with Islamic law values and principles, and it's overlaid on top of a system in which the Sharia principles are sort of the bedrock infrastructure. It's rooted in Sharia. It's, so Islamic law becomes the reference point that you consult whenever there's a gap in the positive law that's enacted through the legislative process. So that, at a minimum, therefore, you have a hybrid of two systems. You have a civil law system because you have positive law enacted by a legislator, but you also have this bedrock of Islamic law which is the Sharia-based system. Second, we see that the system of enacted legislation in many of the institutions in the United Arab Emirates are heavily influenced by Egypt and other Arabic speaking countries. There is a very close correlation between the civil code of the UAE and the civil code of Egypt. And it's a correlation that is so close that lawyers and judges in the UAE routinely consult Professor Sanhuri's commentary on the Egyptian Civil Code to help them understand and interpret the UAE Civil Code. And you see this 12-volume work, Al-Wasit, in um, the offices of most lawyers and judges in the UAE. Um, this, um, In addition, you have courts, the Arabic language courts, the federal courts the Abu Dhabi Judicial Department, Mahakim Dubai, the Ras al-Khaimah courts, all of them are modeled on the structure of the Egyptian court system. The procedures used in the courts are modeled on procedures that are used in Egypt, which in turn are modeled on France. So we find in the UAE direct analogs to Egyptian institutions, such as the Niaba, the Public Prosecution, which corresponds to the French Parquet General. And the Naqt, the Court of Cassation, which corresponds to the French Cour de Cassation. These are analogous institutions. Well, does that mean that the UAE is just like Egypt and France, a civil law system, albeit one with an Islamic law infrastructure? Or is the legal environment here in the UAE more complicated than that? And that brings us to the third point, which is the significant influence of common law on the United Arab Emirates. Some may think that the common law influences here began rather recently and are limited to the role of the large British and American law firms, some of whom are represented in the audience tonight, um, who are active maybe in the financial free zones like Abu Dhabi Global Market or Dubai International Financial Center. But common law ideas Practices and institutions are deeply embedded in the fabric of the UAE system, and they go back to the very early days of federation. And one example of this is the 1971 Dubai law of contract, which was a codification of the contract law of British India. The Dubai law of contract basically took common law principles like the concept of consideration and ported it into Dubai law. The current status of that law, I would say, is um, somewhat uh, unclear. Um, It's not really relied upon much, but it remained on the books for decades, including well after the UAE Federal Civil Code was adopted back in 1985. So you can see the common law influences have been around in the UAE from the very, very beginning. And I think an even bigger influence of the common law is the role of English speaking lawyers and legal consultants working in the country. Although the constitutional text that I had up on the screen a little while ago says that Arabic is the official language of the UAE, and certainly we all know the government is operating in Arabic, however, we also know that English is the de facto language of business in this country. And for decades, English-speaking lawyers working in the UAE have been drafting contracts in English. And most of the time, those contracts are signed and performed without ever being translated into Arabic. The overwhelming majority of the expats who are drafting and reviewing those commercial contracts come from countries with common law backgrounds. And here, I don't want to talk about Britain and the United States or Australia and New Zealand. We are late comers to the process. It's really India and Pakistan. India and Pakistan, our colleagues from those countries have been here for decades before we got here. And they have been working, whether in um, ADNOC or in the banks Uh, in in various places writing contracts. Many of the local litigation firms, even the smaller ones, would have Indian and Pakistani lawyers on staff that act almost as a bridge between their English-speaking client and the Emirati litigator and the litigation team. So what you have is decades worth of contracts that get written in English. And then sometimes disputes happen, and those contracts need to be brought to the local courts by UAE lawyers. So what you have is common law concepts coming in. The courts are forced to deal with them. The contracts aren't being written usually by Egyptian lawyers and and, and Emirati lawyers. They're being written by English-speaking lawyers. So you wind up with concepts from the common law that are getting into the court system, and the courts are forced to deal with them one way or another, and that always has an effect. Um, Beyond contract drafting, what about contract interpretation? and dispute resolution. Here's where things, I think, get really interesting. Um, Arbitration seems to now be one of the fastest growing forms of dispute resolution throughout the United Arab Emirates. And especially we see this in construction contracts, in infrastructure contracts, large projects. Increasingly, contract disputes get resolved outside of the courts through arbitration. And arbitration practice um, in this country uh, tends to be dominated by some of the big English-speaking law firms um, and British law firms in particular. So the practical reality often tends to be that if a dispute over a complex construction contract is going to go to arbitration, it's very often likely that both sides are represented by British or American lawyers. Um, Both sides may appoint arbitrators who are English-speaking lawyers from common law countries. And it may be that both sides even fly in a barrister from London to argue the case in front of the tribunal when it gets to the final hearings. Both sides wind up presenting their respective cases through lawyers who are steeped in common law expectations, common law methodologies and sensibilities, to arbitrators who are going to view the facts and the law and the legal issue through the lens of their common law glasses. Even if your contract specifies that the laws of Abu Dhabi and the United Arab Emirates are the governing law, and the arbitrators make a valiant effort to apply Abu Dhabi law to the contract. They are going, they cannot help themselves but to read, interpret, and apply UAE law as they understand it, usually through translations into English, some of which may be good and some of which may be not so good, but inevitably through the lens of their common law training and experience, The decisions by the arbitrators are then going to affect the expectations of businessmen. And these expectations will eventually form their way into custom and practice in the UAE market. And we then remind ourselves that the civil code, and I didn't put up on the screen the commercial code, both tell us that custom and practice forms part of UAE law. So one way or another, As the Emirati lawyer said to me a couple of years ago, like it or not, common law lawyers and common law thinking is shaping the legal environment of this country, like it or not. And then we have the two English language courts that are operating in the nation's two financial free zones. ADGM, the Abu Dhabi Global Market, which is just nearby to here, and DIFC, the Dubai International Financial Center. Both of these are common law courts operating in the English language in common law enclaves carved out of Abu Dhabi and Dubai, respectively. They operate in an English law framework, meaning that they use English law court rules and procedures and generally operate pretty much the same way as a court in England would operate. And I think I have here um, a list of the judges on the ADGM court. And you can see um, uh, England, England, New Zealand, Australia, England, Scotland, England, England. That's where the ADGM court justices come from. And if we look at the DIFC court, it's slightly more diverse. You have Singapore, UK, three UAE justices, UK, Australia, Malaysia, UK, UK, Singapore. So um, very much common law oriented, we do have the three UAE justices on the DIFC court. Well, originally both of these courts were set up with a very limited jurisdiction. Uh, ADGM court is much newer, Dubai. The DIFC court has been around since I think 2004 or so. Um, Set up with a very limited jurisdiction to handle cases only in that free zone only involving companies in the free zone with one another or companies in the free zone with the administrative agencies of that free zone. ADGM court still has that limitation, but Dubai, DIFC court does not anymore. Dubai law always provided that DIFC court judgments would be fully enforceable in the rest of Dubai outside the free zone. And conversely, that Dubai court judgments would be fully enforceable inside DIFC. Well, in 2011, the government of Dubai expanded the jurisdiction of the DIFC court by allowing what they call opt-in jurisdiction. You can choose in your contract Any future disputes will be handled by the DIFC court. Or if you have an existing dispute, the two parties can sign a paper and say, we both agree to submit our case to DIFC court rather than to in Dubai or rather than Abu Dhabi court or anywhere else. So it effectively means that in Dubai, you now have two parallel coexisting court systems. One the DIFC court, which you can opt into. You can select it, and if chosen, The DIFC court will hear the case in English. Your evidence will be in English. All your submissions will be in English using common law procedures, but applying whatever governing law you've agreed on. So maybe your contract says, all you know, this contract is governed by the laws of Dubai and the United Arab Emirates, but we agree that any disputes will be heard by DIFC court. And you might want to do that because in your typical Uh, construction dispute, you might have tens of thousands of pages of documents, and anything that goes into the Mahakim Dubai or the Abu Dhabi Judicial Department has to be translated by a certified translator at, you know, if you get a discount, maybe 60 dirhams per page. So you can do the arithmetic, it comes out to be very expensive, and maybe you'd rather handle your case strictly in English, and DIFC court gives you that option. The Dubai courts are now still there, so you have two court systems in parallel. Mahakim Dubai are available as a backstop if the parties didn't choose to go to DIFC court. So you have these two parallel systems. It is a remarkable development. It means that you have a common law court system operating right inside of the UAE, so this in and of itself, this alone tells us that the UAE is not purely a civil law system if it ever was one. But um, as a corollary, it means that whenever the DIFC court is faced with a dispute concerning a contract where the governing law is UAE law, you have English, Australian, Malaysian, Singaporean judges interpreting and ruling on the laws of the UAE There's nothing objectionable about that. But it means that these judges will be reviewing English translations of the laws and will be interpreting the laws as they understand them, which, as I said earlier, will inevitably be affected by their years of training and experience in common law tradition. This, in turn, sets up what is, to me, a really interesting question given that the DIFC court and the Dubai courts use different methodologies, could this lead to a divergence in jurisprudence as to what Dubai law is or what UAE law is? And I think if my order is right, I have slides to talk about this. So DIFC court being a common law court has a system of binding precedent. The, Dubai, the DIFC Court of Appeal, which is the top court in DIFC, issues a ruling. It binds the court of first instance. And obviously, it applies to people-specific cases. Just like I talked about in the common law tradition, there's that horizontal aspect as well. It binds future courts. It binds the court in future cases where you have similar facts and similar legal issues, okay? Um, These decisions are enforceable in the courts of Dubai. So I have DIFC court judgment. That court judgment creates a binding precedent. The judgment is published on the DIFC court's website so everybody can read it. They know what it is. It creates a binding precedent that precedent, as far as the IFC court is concerned, now becomes part of Dubai law. They can, the, the winning party can now take that judgment over to uh, the Arabic side of the street and go to an uh, office in Mahakim, Dubai, and get that enforced. And in other words, it means collect his money. He can go get the court bailiff to go and knock on the door and say, please pay the judgment. And eventually, if the person refused to pay, they can take a little small hammer and break the door and take stuff out of it. That's what it means to get your judgment enforced. Um, They can um, do that in the Dubai courts. So ultimately, as I said, you have two systems, and I have them with parallel lines here, the DIFC court and the Dubai courts. They're both fully operational. The DIFC court decides cases under Dubai law, as it understands it, including prior DIFC court precedents. Whatever it decides becomes a part of DIFC, becomes a part of Dubai law, and then goes and binds it. So it's now an arrow, I guess, would be going back up to DIFC court, because it can incorporate that thinking in its future cases. On the other side, we have Mahakim Dubai, which is deciding cases under Dubai law as they understand it, with prior judgments of the Mahkamah the Cassation Court in Dubai, serving as persuasive but not binding authority. Their rulings don't create binding precedent, okay? So we may have two separate courts in the same emirate reaching different views on what a particular article of the Civil Code means, for example, or what the uh, rule should be in liquidated damages, or um, you know any number of things. We might get different outcomes. So I have here parallel lines. And to me, what really is the big question is are these lines going to stay parallel are they going to converge or are they going to diverge and it's really hard to know it's a little bit early to tell they could converge if the two court systems are studying what each other is doing and particularly here if the dubai courts begin sort of relying on some of the precedent set by dafc court and vice versa. And I do think, if I go back a few slides, having these three UAE national justices on DAFC court is an important part of that. Because these gentlemen, who are all really um, top-flight minds, came out of the Dubai court system. They obviously have friends there. They obviously are still um, interacting. And they view part of their mission as sort of a transfer of knowledge and technology back from the IFC court into Mecca and in Dubai, um, so that's that's sort of the optimistic view. Um, it's also quite conceivable that the two lines diverge because you really have um, you may have these courts not paying much attention to what the other courts are doing and ruling, and vice versa. So it's it's kind of hard to know what's going to happen, but. Um, We, you know, that is something to watch, I think, um, in the next decade or so. That's how it's going to play out. How are we doing for time, by the way? Because I don't have a, I don't know when we started. I I, I can stop here and take questions if, if it's a good time to do that then. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, so... What we can see, I think, here in the UAE is you have a a very complex system. You definitely have a hybrid of um, multiple legal systems. You have overt institutions which are uh, applying more than one of the legal systems in, in real, actual cases in real time. And I think what we're witnessing in real time is a rapid evolution and now ADGM court, which really just got up and running a couple of years ago, I think that's gonna be another experiment. How does that work? How does it interact with the IFC court? How does it interact with the Arabic language courts in Abu Dhabi? And I think all of this is gonna be really exciting to watch over the next, I would say, five to 10 years and, and, and you know, maybe check back then and we'll have answers to some of these questions.